Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and find your way to Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that there are some located on the table in the foyer. Uh, feel free to grab one of those on your way out. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the scriptures. We're in the middle of a, a journey through the gospel of Mark, and we've made it all the way to the end of chapter 3. Progress, right? It's progress. Mark chapter 3. Uh, to the passage our friend John read for us a few moments ago, starting in verse 31. That's what we'll pick up reading here in a few moments. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the name Ronda Rousey. You know that by the end of 2015, she was a, she was a big star. That at one time last year, Sports Illustrated named her the most dominant athlete in the world. And she had quite a career up to that point, quite a trajectory. She was the first U.S. woman to ever win um, an Olympic medal in judo. And prior to that, she was the youngest woman to ever qualify for the Olympics. She did so at the age of 14. She was consistently one of the top three ranked judo uh, champions in the world before she made the transition to mixed martial arts. She became an MMA fighter. And when she did, she dominated. She was incredible. She uh, became world champion very quickly, and she went on to a 12-0 record, and only th- of all the knockouts that she had, I think only one person managed to uh, get past the first round in a bout with, with Rousey. She defeated eight of those 12 fighters in less than a minute. She was about as dominant as they come, but then in November of last year, she, she suffered her first defeat, and she lost bad. I mean, it, it was a bad loss. And it kind of shook her up in many ways, more than just physically. It shook her up emotionally. It shook up the foundation of her very identity, so much so that in an interview not long after that loss, she made this statement. She said, I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And And at that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one cares. No one cares about me anymore, not without this. Those are hard words for a person to say. And those words disclose that she lost more than a fight on that day. That when she lost that fight, she lost her identity. She was no longer the world's most dominant athlete. And without that title, without that recognition, without that role, if she couldn't be that person, if she couldn't have that identity, she would then sentence herself saying, I'm nothing. And then draw the conclusion upon herself, I am am not lovable. She suffered in that moment from a, a terrible identity crisis. And you know, perhaps, that an identity crisis, when that hits home, it is, it is a hard thing to go through. When a person's sense of self begins to unravel, it, it, it's a challenging dynamic for any human being. And usually when that happens, when a person suffers an identity crisis and their sense of self, their inner sense of, of who they are, what they're building their lives upon, when, that, when the fabric of that identity begins to unravel, it does so because what, it's been, what that identity has been founded upon has suddenly failed them. A guy by the name of Ernest Becker, he draws the analogy of an amoeba to describe uh, this familiar search for personal identity and, and what can happen in our lives to create such a crisis of self. He, he said this, he said, an amoeba 
can extend its cell walls to surround and enclose a foreign body. But then he goes on to say when that happens, when that happens, the amoeba becomes as vulnerable as the fate of that object. Therefore, whatever a person bases their identity upon becomes very, very important. Just ask the families of those who, who during the stock market crash in 1921, of those who jumped off the tops of buildings. Ask the families of those who did similar things during the Great Recession at the turn of the 21st century. You see, in the familiar search for identity, we have a tendency to attach our identities, our sense of self, to fragile foundations. We attach our identity to fragile foundations, aspects of the created order that are too easily shaken up, too easily shaken up, too easily taken away, or too easily eclipsed by something greater. Because ultimately, a person's identity is only as firm as the foundation upon which it's built. Now, some of those fragile foundations that we tend to build our identities upon, that which we are building our lives upon, some of those fragile foundations are obvious. It's pretty obvious that a job is a fragile foundation because jobs can be lost. It's pretty obvious that a bank account is a fragile foundation because money can be spent, it can be stolen. It's pretty obvious that a body image is a fragile foundation because our bodies can break down, they can change. It is pretty obvious that a fragile foundation is a political party. If you're banking your hope on whoever wins the election this year, it's possible that you can be disappointed and disillusioned by whoever you're putting your hope in in that regard. It's pretty obvious that a social cause can be a fragile foundation because social causes are easily frustrated by the fallenness of humanity, no matter how noble or good those causes may be. It is pretty obvious that a fragile foundation is the pursuit of a goal or some other ambition or some other, other desire, maybe even a pleasure. It's fairly obvious that those are fragile foundations upon which to build a person's identity. But in tonight's passage, I want to I point out a fragile foundation. Better yet, Jesus wants to point out a fragile foundation that may catch many of us by surprise. You see, in this passage, he exposes a fragile foundation that might catch all of us off guard. Because in this passage... Starting in verse 31, you find a group of people whose foundation, the, the basis for their identity is being shaken up. It is being taken away. And in many ways, it is being eclipsed by something greater. And that fragile foundation is it's the family. Check it out in verse 31. Listen to what Jesus says starting there. The passage opens with Jesus' mother and his brothers they, they came, and standing outside, they sent to Jesus and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they, said to, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, at first glance, this seems innocuous. This seems harmless. Jesus' mother and brothers are, are seeking him. They want his attention. That seems innocuous. It seems harmless, but... As we mentioned last week, we want to make sure we're examining these passages in light of their context. So you want to jump all the way up to verse 21 to discover why they were seeking Jesus. You jump up to verse 21, and this is what it says. And when his family heard 
When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, referring to Jesus, for they were saying he is out of his mind. In other words, his mother and his brothers are seeking him in this moment the way you and I might seek our crazy uncle. The the guy who's embarrassing the family. The guy who needs to be reeled in because he's he's damaging our familial identity and our familial uh, reputation in society. So they're seeking Jesus as though he's some type of crazy uncle. They're worried about the things he's saying. They're worried about the things that he's doing. They're worried about the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees and other religious leaders have have come to assess Jesus and to size him up. And they are now discouraging people from following Jesus and listening to Jesus and looking to Jesus. And so they're taking this as personally because in the first century Jewish world, In the first century Jewish world, the family was the dominant feature of one's identity. A person's identity was tied intimately and intricately to their their familial identity. And so in their mind, they need to reel Jesus in because he was harming the foundation upon which their identity was built. That Jesus, because he was saying the types of things that he was doing, because he kept kind of standing against the religious leaders who came to oppose him, all of a sudden, he's heaping shame and embarrassment upon him by the various things he is saying and he's doing. And I'm curious, how often, how often do you and I relate to Jesus as though he's a crazy uncle? How often do we relate to Jesus as though he's a crazy uncle, that when he says and does things that expose the fragile foundations upon which we're building our identities, not only ours personally, but our societies. And not only our societies, but our culture as a whole. You know, the various things that we tend to boast in in this world. We live in a culture and a society personally. We boast in the fact that we're independent, self-governing people. We boast in our freedom. We boast in our sexual expression. We boast in our tolerance. We boast in our prosperity. And all of a sudden, when Jesus begins to say things that may qualify or flat out contradict those passions and those priorities, all of a sudden, we need to reel him in. We seek him to seize him. We seek him to control him. We seek him to silence him. We do not seek him to submit to him. We relate to him as though he is a crazy uncle when he says things that goes against the grain of our personalities or our personal preferences and our social priorities. When he says and does things that runs against those, we're embarrassed. And so we seek him to reel him in. And this happens a lot of times when it comes to the things we talk about when it relates to what Jesus says. You know, Jesus says a lot of good things in the Gospels. He says a lot of phenomenal things, and some of those we love to prioritize, and we love to shout loudly to anyone and everyone. We love the fact that Jesus says, come to me, everyone who is heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We hear that from Jesus, and we're like, yes, that's my Jesus. Let's broadcast that, and we should. But when we turn the corner and we hear other things that Jesus says, we're not as as quickly to shout it out. Instead, we might hit the mute button. Or we just kind of mouth the words. We don't really want people to hear some of the things that Jesus says. And so we treat him as though he's a crazy uncle by selectively choosing what we're going to emphasize in our discipleship, what we're going to emphasize in our teaching, what we're going to emphasize in our community of faith. 
So another example, a passage that we, we don't get as excited about is found in perhaps some of the things he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, this is some of the things that Jesus says. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said that. And then he goes on. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Here's why. For it is better, Jesus, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And we're tempted to reel Jesus in at that point. We're tempted to silence those words of Jesus. We're tempted to overlook those standards of Jesus. We want to reel him in. We seek him to seize him. And, to, and not only does it happen with the things that he says when he tells us to take sin and its consequences seriously, not, not only do we reel him in on that point, we even treat him as a, as a crazy uncle when it comes to the things that he did. When it comes to the things that he did, and there, there, there are some, and I, and I pray this is, never, this is never true of who we are as a community and a family of faith. There are some who are becoming increasingly embarrassed by the cross of Christ. To say that Jesus died for sins is too unflattering to the human ego. So people are trying to mute it. They're trying to silence it. The meaning of the cross is being taken out from it. So we tweak the emphasis of the cross. We say things. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, he died as an example He died as an example to us, not necessarily a substitute for us. And when we do that, we're simply treating him as though he's a crazy uncle. Selectively projecting our preferences upon him. I've shared this analogy with you before, but suppose you see a person running along the side of the Aurora Bridge, just screaming out with everything that they are, I love you, Seattle, I love you, Seattle. And then that person jumps over the side and falls to their death. I doubt any light bulbs are going to come on in your minds and thinking, well, I was in the dark about what love is, but he said he loved me, and then he jumped over the side, so now I know. Now I know what love is. That's quite an example. I doubt anyone would do that because that would be ridiculous, right? But suppose somebody was running along the side of the bridge screaming out, I love you, I love you, I love you, and he wasn't screaming out generically about one particular place or one particular region. He was speaking specifically about one particular person who was about to fall over the side to their death, and the only way they could, this person could save that person is to take that person's place and to go over the side himself. If a person did that, then you would know something about love then you would know something about sacrifice. Then you would know something about self-giving affection. Then you might get a little glimpse, a little picture into what went down when Jesus died on the cross. You see, there's a particular denomination, a mainline denomination in our culture that feels a bit embarrassed by that aspect of the gospel that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins, that he died to, use this phrase, satisfy the wrath of God. And so they've recently voted to remove from their hymnals and their liturgies songs and prayers that refer to Jesus' death as in any way dealing with God's wrath against sin. Because on one hand, it's too unflattering to us, and on the other hand, it sounds weird about God. And so rather than thinking deeply about that makeup, they choose to mute that makeup of the cross. And so people tend to 
treat Jesus like a crazy uncle in a variety of ways. It happens on the individual level. It happens on the corporate level. Anytime we get selective and preferential about the things that Jesus says and about the things that Jesus does, we are seeking him as though we are seeking him in order to seize him, not necessarily to submit to him. And any time he begins to say and do things that threatens the foundation upon which our identities are built, that's when that goes down. That's when we pursue him the way his mother and his brothers are pursuing him in verse 31. We try to reel him in. So let me ask you, in what ways might you be treating Jesus as though he's a crazy uncle? In what ways might you be selective about the things that Jesus said and preferential about the things that Jesus did when he died on the cross and he rose from the grave? Is there any area in your life where you're treating him as though he's just a crazy uncle? See, that's what's going on here. When his mother and his brothers seek him because they want to seize and to silence him, he's, being, he's perceived as a threat to their familial identity, their reputation in society. And so they come to challenge him or to really remove him and to put him perhaps in a padded cell in their home. And so Jesus responds with perhaps the most offensive question he could have asked in this moment. When he learns that his, mother's, his mother and his brothers want his attention, he responds and he raises a question that was incredibly scandalous. It was a shocking question. It was an offensive question. Just imagine if you were his, part of that crew, if you were one of Jesus' brothers or you were his mother and you heard him ask this question. Well, who is my mother and my brothers? Who are they? It's a scandalous question. It's an offensive question. And then he goes on because he says in verse 34, he says, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And in this moment, Jesus begins to expose the fragile foundations of his earthly family because he intends to wreck them and replace them with a foundation that cannot be shaken, cannot be taken, and ultimately cannot be eclipsed by something greater. You see, not only is a person's identity only as firm as the foundation upon which it is built, a person's identity is largely formed by its family. Our personal identity is inevitably formed, for better or for worse, by our experience in or with family. In his book called Beyond Identity, a guy by the name of Dick Keyes, he identifies four factors that work either for or against a, our, our sense of identity, our, our growth in that dynamic. He says one of those factors is a person's moral values. He says a person's moral values affects and helps form a person's identity, meaning that which you cherish above all else, that is a part of who you are as a person. What you're willing to live for, what you're willing to die for, what lines in the sand you're willing to refuse to cross. And see, without moral values, if you have no type of code within you, then you, your sense of identity will never be shored up. But you know as well as I do that a person's moral values are not just principles out there, but when they are taken in, when, when they are taken seriously, they become a part of us. So much so that when we betray our values, we lose our sense of self to some degree. There's a great example of this found in the words of Thomas More in an old play called A Man for All Seasons. And More was in a moment where he was being pressured to approve of Henry VIII's marriage to Anne Boleyn. 
And it was a marriage that his convictions and his faith in Jesus did not really lead him to want to affirm. And so he was challenged, he was pressured to affirm of this message, not only from society, but from his own family. And so his sisters came to him and begged him to to affirm of the king's marriage, that that would make life a lot easier for them. But then Moore said this to his own daughter. He said, you know, when a man takes an oath, Meg, referring to his his, uh, commitment to teach the scriptures and to lead out in the church, he says, when a man takes an oath, he is holding his own self in his hands. He's holding his own self in his hands like water. And then he, in the play, he just kind of cups his hands like this. And then he says, and if he opens his fingers, then he needn't, Hope to find himself again. If he betrays his values, his code, if he contradicts it and he, he loses himself. And that's the idea when it, moral values and how they affect our search for personal identity. That when we betray them, they're such a crucial part of who we are. We somehow cease to be solid people. We somehow cease to be substantial people. But not only does he say moral values shape a person's identity, he says our models shape a person's identity. In other words, who it is that we choose to admire, who it is that we seek to imitate, that over time we, every person accumulates various heroes and heroines and and who we choose, uh, who those are will factor into who we become. But not only is it our values and our models, but it's also our sense of purpose, Understanding that every human being was created in the image of God, they've been wired with a desire to contribute to the world at large. We want purpose. It's what drives us to take the jobs that we take. It's what drives us to do the things that we do. We want to have some type of mastery over some bit of the world to some degree. And so how a person contributes, for better or for worse, to the world affects the formation of their identity. And then fourthly, he says, it's also the factor of love. He says it's the factor of love. We know that psychologists love to affirm that human beings need to be loved. But when you read through the scriptures and you discover how people find their identities in the scriptures, you, you discover that the gospel focuses not only on a human being's desire to be loved, but in their need to show love, that love must be reciprocated, that that helps round out the self when love is not only received, but when love is given. This is why when Rousey lost her identity, when she was no longer the most dominant athlete in the world, she would draw the conclusion that she was no longer lovable. She couldn't be loved because her identity was gone. Now, each of those four factors, our values, our models, our purpose, and our love, they are affected for better or for worse by the family. Our families provide our most immediate and our most intimate exposure to them. And I know that is tough because not everyone's family experience and upbringing is the same. Not everyone views the family in the same way. Not everyone sees family as something positive. It is something negative. Especially when you move into younger generations, as younger generations are moving away from the foundational or the elemental family, and they're starting new families with their peers. And you see this dynamic happen in sitcoms and the way that sitcoms have developed in the entertainment industry in the 80s. You know, the most popular sitcom was The Cosby Show, and it revolved around that family. All the drama happened there. But then you get into the 90s, and what happens? Then it becomes Friends. 
It's no longer the Cosby Show. It is now Friends. That's the shift in our culture. You get into the turn of the 21st century, you get shows like Scrubs. Then you get uh, the Big Bang Theory, very similar dynamic. It's, it's still uh, a desire for family. It's just that families are taking a different shape. Those who are rejecting what might be described as a traditional family makeup are trying to find the same factors of love and purpose, of models and values amongst their peer groups and their particular social tribe. And this happens because we view families in different ways. There are some who view family as a type of straitjacket that they need to escape from. That family is a straitjacket in the sense that they view their family as always getting in the way of what they really want to do. Families get in the way and they place limits and restrictions and expectations that are too high. So the family becomes a hindrance and that needs to be shirked. Teenagers experience this. A lot of teenagers go through this dynamic where they view their family in this way. But then at the same time, so does the dad who abandons his family. The dad who abandons his family in search of something else because he views the family as a straitjacket. One example of this in the scriptures would be Jesus' story about the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, he tells a story about a, a son who wanted to escape the straitjacket of his family. He wanted to go his own way and discover himself. So he approached his dad and said, Dad, can I have my share of the inheritance? And the dad gave it to him. And so the son went off to live his life as though his dad was dead, abandoned his family, and he went off and did his own thing, went to the far country and splurged everything he had on all kinds of hedonistic pleasures. And ultimately, all he found was the bottom of a pigsty, shaking the straitjacket of his family. But then there are others who may not view the family as a straitjacket that needs to be escaped from. There are others, and I think this is more prominent in this passage, there are others who view the family as a type of castle that needs to be built up and protected at all costs. And in this instance, the family, the elemental, fundamental, perhaps traditional makeup of a family is the focal point of all ambition and all activities. And all of a sudden, the family is turned into an end in and of itself, championing the mantra, nothing is more important than family. And what happens in this scenario is that people stick strictly to the biological lines of separation. They build impenetrable walls around the family's schedule, the family's finances, the family's hobbies, the family's ambitions. And it is impossible for an outsider to get in in any meaningful way. But then what happens when the family becomes a castle, when that's the view, not only is it impossible for people to get in in a meaningful way, people aren't going out either. And that's a problem for the families that are comprised, by follow, comprised of followers of Christ. Because that type of perspective, that type of view on the family will prohibit your family from engaging God's will in a meaningful way. You're not letting people in and you're not going out. And I'm worried that that view had creeps into many churches that focus so much on the family that they unintentionally neglect Jesus' emphasis on the spiritual family. They unintentionally neglect Jesus' emphasis on the spiritual family. You see, those who might not belong to an earthly family that's full of followers of Jesus, that are firing on all gospel cylinders, people who might not belong to that type of tribe, to that type of dynamic, suddenly they can become overlooked. Their needs can become neglected. This is what happens with orphans and widows. This is what happens with single people and college students. 
When a family becomes a castle, it also becomes an idol. And this is where this passage becomes incredibly challenging to me as I've been studying it because when that happens, when family is turned into a castle, it becomes an idol. And I think the idolatry of family may be the most acceptable sin in many churches. And if that's possible, which I think it is, we need to consider Jesus' view of the family. Now, you know as well as I do that Jesus affirms the family, right? If he is who we believe he is, he actually kind of designed the family, right? He was involved in Adam and Eve's creation. He, he had a role to play in telling them to be fruitful and multiply, meaning go have a bunch of kids, build a large family. And we know that all throughout the scriptures, families are, are encouraged and commanded to be provided for, to, to provide for families, to raise your families well. We know that families are good. We know that families are necessary. We know that families are fundamental to a society's uh, well-being. But the, and so the importance of earthly families is affirmed all throughout scripture. It's affirmed by Jesus. But in a passage like this, Jesus reminds us that earthly families, as important as they are, they must not be viewed as ultimate. And if we live as though our families are ultimate, we may cut ourselves off from the eternal family of God. This was the warning Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. This helps us make sense of what he says there when he says things like, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not saying, do not love your family. He's saying, do not treat your earthly family as ultimate. Because your earthly family should not prohibit you from following Jesus in a meaningful way. And so for the non-Christian in this room, if you're someone kind of overhearing this conversation and you're wondering, what does this, what does this affect you? If you are not a follower of Jesus right now, I want to lovingly admonish you that you are not justified in your refusal to follow Jesus because your family doesn't follow Jesus. And you have an opportunity tonight to establish a new lineage, to craft a new heritage, one that isn't built on unbelief, but one that's built on belief, one that is built on faith. Start a new lineage of faith that could spill over into your future children and grandchildren. Earthly family is not ultimate. We are not justified in our unbelief because nobody else in our family are believers. And I know that if you ever choose to follow Jesus, you ever respond to the gospel in this way, I know that can cause friction in your earthly family. It might cause you to be shunned by them. It might cause you to be held at an arm's distance from them. It may sever intimacy. It may sever influence. Those are real consequences that people experience when they decide to follow Jesus all over the world all the time. But it's in light of that is why we want to hear Jesus' view on the family because he moves later in this same gospel, Mark chapter 10, and he out holds out this incredible promise, this affirmation to anyone who may be shunned by their earthly family because they want to follow Jesus and identify with his spiritual family. He has this to say to them. Mark chapter 10, verse 21, I say to you, there, there is no one who has left house or mothers, house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, when you choose to follow Jesus, even if that pulls you out of the current of your earthly family, you do not become an orphan. 
you are not on your own. You step into a much bigger family. You step into a much broader family. You step into a spiritual family. The bonds of which are not forged by flesh and blood. The bonds of which are forged by the blood of Jesus. And so if you're a non-Christian, let me encourage you to think of along those lines. But then I know there are families here who follow Jesus together. And so let me encourage you in light of this text not to turn your family into a castle. Do not assume that Jesus would never call you to do something that might disrupt your familial comforts and priorities. And if and when he does, please do not try to reel him in. Don't seek him to seize him. Don't seek him to silence him. Seek him to submit to him. Let him take your family in whatever direction he wants to take it. One day, perhaps, your children might want to follow Jesus to the hardest places and most uncomfortable places on the planet in an effort to make disciples. Will you support their obedience? Or will you try to reel Jesus in in their life? Will you... Will you support them in that direction? Or maybe your kids one day want to choose a career that might not fatten their creature comforts. Instead, it, but it will enable them to contribute greatly to other people's flourishing. Will you support them in their obedience? Will you release them to follow Jesus regardless of what direction that might take their earthly lives? But then for those of you who are hearing this passage and thinking about it with me, if you're perhaps a young single professional and you're following Jesus, let Jesus' view on the family encourage you. Because earthly family is not ultimate, that means your singleness is not incompleteness. Your singleness is not incompleteness. And any couples who are gathered here, maybe you want to have kids and you feel like your life is not complete because you're childless, let Jesus' view on the family convince you otherwise. Your childlessness is not incompleteness. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. Listen to Jesus' view on the family. His news about family is incredibly good for whoever does the will of God. Single, married, fruitful, or fruitless. Jesus' view on the family is good for all of us. So for every follower of Jesus, regardless of how functional or dysfunctional our earthly families might be, we have been given a new family with each other. This is how Jesus views the family. It's not a straitjacket. It's not a castle. Jesus views the family as a church. This is Jesus' view on the family. It is the church saying, my family consists of whoever does the will of God. And up to this point in Mark's gospel, there's only been one injunction given, one command to qualify that statement. And it's found earlier in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, where Jesus steps onto the scene in Galilee and he says, the time has come and the kingdom of God has arrived. And then he says, repent and believe the gospel. You want to know what it means to do the will of God? It means to repent and believe the gospel. It means stop seeking your own identity in the world that is, whether it be through family, whether it be through career, whether it be some, uh, through some other fragile foundation. Repent, turn from that, and trust in the gospel. Let your identity be established upon Jesus because that's where disciples belong. If you are a follower of Jesus, your identity is founded upon Christ. And when he says this in verse 35, he's introducing a seismic shift. He's shifting us from the self and from anything else and placing our identity squarely upon Jesus. And that's a good place to build your identity because Christ, when he becomes your foundation, 
He is the one foundation for personal identity, the one in the entire universe that cannot be shaken. Christ cannot be shaken, he cannot be taken away, nor can Christ be eclipsed by something greater. When you find your identity upon Christ, you find the security of self that you've been searching for in so many other places. A guy by the name of Brian Chapel tells a story about something that went down in his hometown about uh, two brothers who were playing on the sandbanks by a river. And he said these two brothers, one uh, ran after another up a large mound of sand. And when they got there, they didn't realize that uh, these, sound pile, these sand piles had been put on the shore by uh, boats kind of clearing the, the channel of this, for this river, for the water to flow down this river. And when, they do that, when it does that, the sun dries out the water. And, and so the water, the moisture underneath the surface of the sand, it has to escape somehow. And so when it does, it creates these hidden voids. And so there's just this crust on top, and it hides those voids. Well, as these boys were playing, they, they stepped on one of these hidden voids, and they fell into a sinkhole. Both brothers fell into it. And then later that evening, when the boys did not return home for dinner, the family and the neighbors decided to go out and look for them. So they rallied a tribe, a crew, to go find these, these boys. And when they went to the places where they were playing, they discovered the younger of the two brothers. He was unconscious. But his head and his shoulders were uh, above the sand. Everything else was stuck in this sand pile. And when they woke the brother and they got him conscious, they asked him, well, where's your older brother? And the only thing that the younger brother could say in that moment was, I'm standing on his shoulders. You see, when those two boys hit that hidden sinkhole, the older brother, in love for his younger brother, positioned himself beneath his younger brother's feet and he placed them upon his shoulders so that he could push him to surface so that his younger brother could live. You see, with the sacrifice of his own life, he lifted the younger brother to safety. The tangible, sacrificial love of the older brother literally served as the foundation for that brother's life. And what's interesting is that elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus is described as this ultimate older brother, the one who died to provide a foundation for our lives, the one who died to provide a place for our feet to stand and our identities to be built upon. This is precisely what is said in Hebrews chapter 2, where Jesus there is described again as the ultimate older brother. This is how it says, in, bring, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect, referring to Jesus, perfect through suffering, referring to his death on the cross, both the one who makes men holy, that is Jesus, and those who are made holy, his brothers and sisters, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus brings us into a new family. Because our identity is now founded upon him. And this is liberating. It's liberating, especially when you look back at Mark chapter 3. Because there's a contrast here between this, the family who are standing outside in verse 31. And then those who are sitting around Jesus in verse 34. Because that word for sat around Jesus or sitting around him is the same word that's translated rest earlier in Mark's gospel. When you talk about rest, and so there's the contrast. 
No longer do you have to stand and strive to establish your identity in the world that is. You can sit and rest by finding your identity being built upon the broad shoulders of Jesus Christ. The one who lived, died, and rose again to establish your presence as a son or a daughter in the family of God. A disciple's identity is bound there. This is liberating because it reminds us that we're not We're not defined by our labels. I am not Andrew Arthur, pastor of the Hallows Church. I mean, I am, but I'm not. That's not who I am. That's not my identity. It's liberating because it means you are not defined by your achievements or lack thereof. I am not Andrew Arthur, the most dominant athlete in the world, believe it or not. But even if I was, I wouldn't be. Even if I was, I wouldn't be. I I am not simply Andrew Arthur, family of three fun-loving kids. As cool as that is, that is not who I am. That is not my identity. It's a good thing to be a dad, but it's not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is for me to be a child of God. For to me to have my feet planted firmly on the shoulders of Jesus Building my life upon a foundation that cannot be shaken, cannot be taken away, and ultimately cannot be eclipsed by something greater. I'm standing on the shoulders of Jesus that makes me a child of God. That is who I am. And ultimately, that is who you are. And that identity cannot be added to or subtracted from in any way, shape, or form. Because we're standing on the shoulders of Jesus, we relate to God the same way Jesus related to God. And Jesus was the first rabbi in human history to refer to the creator of the universe as Abba, as Father. And you do too. God is not simply your creator in Christ. He's your Father in Christ. And this means you and I are not simply friends hanging out at Fremont Baptist Church. This means we are family. We are bound together in a spiritual, supernatural family, not by our natural biological DNA. We are bound together by the spiritual reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished for us. And because of that, not only is our identity now founded upon Jesus, our personal identity now becomes formed in his family. We are now a part of a family that should form who we are in the world that is. So that as we press into this new family, our identity solidifies. We learn what it means to live from who we are and not towards who we want to be. Think about it this way. It means that in our family, you think about those four factors. If you are in Jesus' family, this means that in his family, we find our values. We discover what makes life worth living in the family. We discover what what is worth dying for in the family. We embrace the ethics of God's kingdom together, carrying out the priorities of holiness and humility together. That is what we value. We value loving and serving others. In fact, it's encouraged and expected of us. The character of King Jesus is being formed within us, making us solid and substantial people who are trustworthy and honest, wise and faithful, quick to forgive towards those in need. We find our values in the family of Jesus. And those values shore up our sense of self so that we're not pushed to and fro by the irrational effects of sin all around us. You see, in Jesus' family, we find ourselves believing that truth exists. And as we believe that truth exists, we extend grace towards those who might not. 
because we're in his family, we find our values. But not only do we find our values in his family, we see our models in his family. You see, the family of Jesus is not an irrelevant abstraction. It finds concrete and tangible expression in a thing called the church. The local church, this is where we see our models. We figure out, okay, I see, I see this is important about what it means to follow Jesus. I'm not quite sure how to do that. Well, then you look over to someone in the family who's living out that value and you learn from them. Because in Jesus' family, we, we find our values and then we see our models. We learn from one another about what it means to follow Jesus together. What does it mean to have our identity, which is founded upon Jesus, to be formed in this thing called family? One of the most encouraging moments of my ministry here within the Hallows Church happened this past week, sitting around a table with a group of people talking about various things that they love about and appreciated about being a part of the Hallows Church. One of the things was a young man who looked across the, the table at a at an at a follower of Jesus who's who, a little older, and, and, and he looked across the table and he said, what I love about being a part of the Hallows Church is that I find men in this community who I aspire to be like. He's pointing out the model that he has. And we should be able to find models in the local church. We should be able to find models in the family of Jesus. This is why Paul would tell the church at Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look to me as I'm living out my faith and you go and do likewise. So we find our models in the family of Jesus. But not only that, we discover our purpose in the family of Jesus. In his family, we discover our purpose, that together we understand that we have a unique role to play in the world. We've been entrusted with this message and this ministry of reconciliation. We want to lead others to find their identity upon the firm foundation of Christ and his gospel. We want to see others have their find their identity being formed in Jesus' family so we live and we give and we love and we serve to that end. Our purpose is here. So not only here in this moment in Mark's gospel earlier do we get a hint of what it means to do the will of God, to repent and believe the gospel, but then when you come to the end of the gospel, that picture is rounded out because there you discover that it is God's will for us to go forth and to proclaim that same gospel, to lead others into a life of repentance and faith to see other people put their feet on the broad shoulders of Jesus and to find their lives affected and formed by the family of faith made tangible in a local church. So we discover our purpose, but then we also learn how to reciprocate our love in his family. Love begins to shape our identity as we learn to love others the way God in Christ has loved us. You see, one of the things about this family, Jesus' family, one of the frustrating dynamics of verse 35, it says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That word, whoever, can be frustrating because that means you don't get to pick and choose who's a part of the family. That means you may be seated, seated next to someone who is not naturally like you. But you're learning, your identity is being formed in the family as you are learning to love people you might not naturally gravitate towards. And when this happens, we are able to do what Jesus says we should be able to do, that the world might be able to look at the love that we have for one another and know that we're the disciples of Jesus, know that we are followers of Christ. And so we, we reciprocate love in his family, learning to love those who are not like us, learning to love people who are different from us, to both give it and receive it. We want the Hallows Church to be a family. We want this to be a place where people learn how to love and be loved, where they are known 
where they know others and are known by others. We want the Hallows Church to be a place where our identity in Christ is formed. And it is being formed because of our values. It is being formed because of our models. It's being formed because of our purpose. And it is being formed because of, because of our love. But if this is going to happen, I, I'm going to use a, a word that might be tough for some of you, but if this is going to happen, it's going to require commitment. It requires commitment. One of the reasons why your identity in Christ and the formation of that identity is stunted in your life right now is because you're a floater and not a full-fledged participant in a local church. You're just bouncing around from one family dinner party to the next, and you're not really plugging in. You're not really opening yourself up to knowing others and being known by them. You're too easily frustrated, and you're too quick to cut ties when relationships go sour or there's someone sitting across the room from you who is not like you. And so you're looking for a group that, that reminds you of your own reflection. And if that's your approach to local church, if that's your approach to family, your growth as a follower of Jesus will remain stunted. So if we're going to form a family in the Hallows Church, it's going to require con- commitment. It's going to require us pursuing one another in love and in humility, in grace and with integrity and intentionality. And so let me encourage you, if you haven't yet plugged in to this local church or some other local church, this family of faith or some other family of faith that is founded upon the gospel, do so. Quit wasting your time. Quit stunting your own growth by not diving in. One of the ways that we affirm our, the foundation of our identity and one of the ways in which this identity is being formed in our family of faith is every week we have an opportunity to share a family meal together. And this family meal is designed to remind us of who we are in Christ and it is, remi- is designed to remind us of who we are for and with one another because this is a meal that we partake in together. The night before Jesus was crucified, he took his disciples up to, uh, into the upper room and they sat down and they shared what's called the Last Supper or uh, communion together. And it's interesting that in that moment, they sat his disciples around a table which was a familial atmosphere because this meal should reinforce the dynamic of Jesus' family. And so if you are right now someone who is standing on the shoulders of Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus, you're a part of the family of God, I want to invite you at your own pace to come to the table after I pray and partake of this meal. And as you do so, you're going to hear the words of the gospel. This is the body of Christ given for you. You're going to dip it in the cup. You're going to hear the words of the gospel. This is the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And you're going to partake in this meal and be reminded of of who you are in Christ and be reminded of who we are together as a family. Just sinners saved by grace, standing on the broad shoulders of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. The tables will be open for you to come at your own pace. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you to refrain from coming to the table at this time. There's a couple of prayers provided on the back of your your teaching notes and outline there that can help put some language and some words to maybe what you're experiencing or sensing in this moment, help you process what's been said and what's been sung and other things that are going on in this moment. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you right now and just ask that your grace would abound, that as we approach your table, would your Holy Spirit minister to us. I pray that we would rest in the fact that our identity is founded upon the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And I pray that as we rest in that together tonight, that our bond with each other would be strengthened and that our identities would increasingly be formed as we enjoy your family together. God, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.